Welcome back to AD 79, Year of Vesuvius, Episode 8, Lucius Caecilius Jucundus and Associates. Last episode, we discussed the earthquake of AD 63 and the bas-relief of the damaged Pompeian Forum in the house of Lucius Caecilius Jucundus. There is more to say about him and his doings. For starters, it's fair to say that he is now probably Pompey's most famous ex-resident, certainly near the top, if not at the top. The why of that is twofold. One, the striking bronze bust of the man inside the house that bears his name, along with the earthquake freeze mentioned in episode 7. A startling human figure standing almost alone among all those half-realized plaster casts of anonymous men and women in their moments of death, all too real and yet not quite real. With the bust, coupled with a name, we are face to face with someone we can imagine meeting on the street. It's a striking piece of work. The man in question, enduring thinning hair, decided bags under his eyes, penetrating eyes to be sure, in the right light a substantial mole on the lower left cheek, ears that stick out a bit. This is a man who has no illusions about himself or the world, and is perfectly content to be seen as he was. The figure is so compelling, and the fellow's background sufficiently known, known enough at least to form the kernel of a narrative, that the syndics of Cambridge University Press drafted him to be the hero of the narrative portion of their Latin instruction books. Caecilius est in horto. Caecilius in horto said it. Servus est in atrio. Servus in atrio laborat. Caecilius is in the garden. Caecilius is sitting in the garden. The slave is in the atrium. The slave is working in the atrium. Hemingway-esque in its way, but it is for first-year students. The Cambridge authors flesh out the slave, name of Grumio, by giving him a regular job as a cook and a sometimes comedic sidekick, name of Clemens. Spoiler alert, they all die in the eruption, which seems unlikely, but then the book makes no claims to be history, more history-adjacent at best. In truth, there aren't enough data points to make possible the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth for a biography of his, but there are some clues. So, hard evidence first. That bust. Fate has seen fit to present it to us attached to its marble base on which is written the dedicatory's inscription, Genio L. Nostri Felix L. Stone carvers, like Western Union, presumably charged by the word or even the letter. So to save space and money, Romans would leave out letters, and sometimes entire words, on inscriptions on the assumption that anyone who could read would figure out what was meant. In this case, spelled out in full, we can read Genie Lucii Nostri Felix Libertus. To the spirit of our Lucius, I, freedman Felix, commissioned it, commissioned it being understood. Our Lucius is a nice touch. We assume that our L is our Lucius Caecilius Jucundus. 
Anyone visiting the house in AD 79 would not have need to have been told. So much for the bust for now. Then there was the strongbox. Actually, there isn't the strongbox. Rather, there was the strongbox, which used to be found, according to the archaeologist who did not find it, above the portico of the peristyle in a space measuring one cubic meter. The box is gone, the carbonized wood that was proof of its existence, crumbled ash by the time the archaeologist found it, is also gone. But the contents, the contents surprisingly remain, and in surprisingly good shape. The contents were writing tablets, about 10 by 12 centimeters, wood panels with raised edges, with wax slathered into the depression. The writers wrote out whatever was to be written out with a stylus. Technically, these were about as permanent as those magic writing pads of a few decades back, cardboard tablets with a thin smear of black tar and gray plastic covering. You took a stylus, wrote your note, and wherever you pressed, the tar shone through until you lifted the plastic, broke the seal, and erased the message. The pads were suitable for ephemeral messages between adults, secret spy messages between eight-year-olds. Roman schoolchildren used the earlier version, without the gray plastic covers, to hone their writing skills, the advantage being that one could rewrite and rewrite we may assume that children wrote rude comments about their magistri, their teachers, behind his back, and smoothed the evidence before he had a chance to smack them. Ovid, still chasing women, mentions the advantage of impermanence as well. Love notes are not to be tossed off at first drafts, and probably not to be put to paper if the affair is illicit. What is most significant for our purposes is the fact that, when the writer presses the stylus down too hard, the secret message, loving or hateful, will be scratched on the wood itself. Which is exactly what happened with the tablets of Eucundus. Obviously, wax wasn't going to survive the eruption or the burning box, but the tablets carbonized wood, those actually managed to survive in 156 instances. Better yet, those were not recycled student tablets, all meaningless scratch-outs and misspellings. These were pristine. Fun story. Paulus Julius writes about a Carthaginian who wrote a secret letter on an unwaxed tablet, then covered it with wax and sent it off as if fresh. The recipient had only to remove the wax for the message to reveal itself bit of a cross between Edgar Allan Poe and Arthur Conan Doyle. Anyway, happily, the Agundas tablets were otherwise pristine, likely by design if one were concerned with the ghost writings of previous tablet scratchers. These tablets, meant to be more or less permanent, certainly more so than Ovid's mash notes or primary school children's exercises, came in the form of diptychs, a pair of panels. Eucundus, or his scribe, would ensure that the meaty business was folded inwards for safekeeping, then write a summary on the outside, tie the results together, and have them sealed in the presence of witnesses who would sign their names attesting to the operation. 
Some packages had a third table sandwiched between the two outside samples. Why not use papyrus, dried leaves from Egypt pressed together and suitable for long texts and scroll form? Harder to engineer a seal at a guess. Not quite as impressive looking as a bit of polished wood. Harder to secure against vermin. Also, papyrus was harder to write on than was wax. So at least according to the contemporary teacher of rhetoric Quintilian. The carbonized plates can still be seen at Naples Archaeological Museum. Among the first to see them was Carl Zangemeister, 1837-1902, librarian and philologist, who spent 20 years transcribing the decidedly peculiar writing into a standard modern typeface. The transcriptions are in the monumental Corpus Inscriptionum Latinarum, 19th century German scholarship, nothing like it. Others who have checked his work have found nothing to complain about. What did he find? Old financial records. Most are auction results, from which Eucundus took a buyer's premium and a seller's commission. Then, as now, auctioneering was a good way to make a pile. The mechanics are not entirely clear. Was he a barker or just the financier? The technical term for financier was Argentarius. That is to say, he would act as middleman between buyers and sellers, paying off the seller for the total amount owing and giving the buyer a stipulated length of time to pay for the goods delivered. Sadly, the nature of the auctions is also obscure. Whether job lots or estates or specific high-value items, one would like to have had an auction catalog. Instead, we get such notes as this. Umbricia Januaria declared that she had received from El Caecilius Iacundus 11,039 sesterces, which some came into the hands of El Caecilius Iacundus by agreement as the proceeds of an auction sale for Umbricia Januaria, the commission due him having been deducted. Denim Pompey on the twelfth day of December in the consulship of Lucius Duvius and Publius Clodius, that is to say, A.D. 59. There followed a list of nine witnesses to the document, which in itself tells us something about how much Romans trusted witnesses to be around in case anything was contested, and perhaps just how often things were contested. Eucundus clearly wanted to cover his exposure. Interestingly, the list is in descending order of social standing, as if to warn any would-be litigants to have a care against suing. And in Brisha Januaria? What was she selling and why? Hard times, moving out, gambling debts, widowhood. Something for the novelists to play with. The earliest of the documents dates to 15 AD and concerns Eucundus's father, or possibly uncle, Lucius Caecilius Felix. Payment of 520 sesterces for a mule. The mule went for more than a slave. Twelve years pass until the next receipt, this one in the year AD 27, and continue for the next 35 years. 
With a cutoff date of 8063, date of the earthquake, that works out to a little more than four deals a year. And the date stamps show some years better than others, but it's hard to believe that this was all that the man was getting up to. Not, that is, when you run the numbers. On an average taking of about 4,500 sesterces a pop, this at a time when a legionnaire got 900 sesterces a year, and that before expenses. Crassus once said that you could call no man rich who cannot afford an army out of his own pocket. Crassus, you'll recall, could and did afford an army, and was killed by Parthians who poured molten gold down his throat as a commentary on his thirst for wealth. Eucundus had the good fortune never to have gone quite that mad. His most successful auction brought in nearly 40,000 sesterces. The Falernian wine must have flowed freely that night. Nunc est bibendum, as Horace put it, now is the time for drinking. All in all, enough to make the owning of that house quite believable. Other income streams came from tax farming for the city, rent on farmland, a felonica, wool treatment. That was actually something of a money loser, so far as the records we have indicate. Unlikely to earn him a write-off, Roman tax accounting had not discovered the tax write-off. If the eruption did for the wax, what did for the business? Or, rather, why did the records stop in the year 62? We can only speculate. Which brings us back to the named householder at the time and earlier. Who was our Lucius? Who was our Felix, for that matter? It is speculated that one Lucius Caecalia Felix, the man who bought the mule, worked as a minister for the Emperor Augustus about 1 B.C., it is further speculated that Lucius Caecilius Jucundus, our bronze man, was his son, or nephew. Jucundus had two sons of his own, Quintus Caecilius Jucundus and Sextus Caecilius Jucundus, thought by some to have inherited and owned the house at the time of the eruption. All we know of them is that both names appear on campaign posters, a subject for next month. Outside the house, both men endorsing the political hopes of Caius Secundus for Duumvir, a local magistracy. The lack of financial records after the earthquake suggests that no banking business was being conducted out of this house. Was Lucius still alive? What were the boys doing, if not banking? As we have seen with the Flavians, social mobility was possible in Rome. Lucius shared the name with a third-century general who defeated Hasdrubal in the Second Punic War, and the family line may have come through his mother. Not a bad place to start if politics is your thing. And if the boys were indeed aiming at the cursus honorum, their father's banking business would have been off-limits to them. Alternatively, they could have moved out of town entirely, and their endorsement done as a favor by the next tenant, who would conceivably have been the freedman Felix, who put up the presumably not cheap bust on his own dime. Let's try that scenario again, starting from the earthquake. 
The ground has steadied, the dust is hanging in the air, but slowly blowing away with the wind. The house of Caecilius Eucundus has been badly damaged, but is capable of repair. Eucundus is still alive, but shaken, grateful that his sons are safe, his money intact. There are aftershocks. Pompey has become unnerving for a man of his age, with much to lose. He has a mind to relocate, he hoped, to safer parts. Recall that Seneca was sneering at people who did that earlier. But if the family had connections in Rome, there was no reason not to leave. Not that he didn't seriously consider staying put. But the house was a construction zone, the last place to do business. One could, theoretically, still have lived there and done business in the Forum. But leaving aside the depressing mess of the place, would that have been a good look for a man who trades in part on his own wealth? It would not. Appearance is everything in the money business, and to be seen to be living in a place like that gives the wrong impression. Easy to imagine Eucundus on the days and weeks after the catastrophe, when the dust had settled and the emotional wounds had begun to scar over, and a businessman's fancy turns to thoughts of money. Picture him sitting in the forum, bemoaning to his business associates about how difficult life was while the contractors were robbing him blind just to get his house back into some kind of order, or at least safe to live in. Not that he couldn't afford it, mind you, obviously he could. And also, obviously, things were far worse for others. He had that small villa just a few miles out of town, very comfortable, if a bit of a journey to get there. As to the city house, thank the gods that he had a good man on sight, the slave Felix, to keep a sharp eye on the builders and scare off idlers and squatters. But it was still tiresome. And how are you getting on? House damage as well? Roof caved in, you say? Unfortunate, most unfortunate. And you say you need a small loan for some repairs? Of course, of course, Eucundus is always available to help a friend. Though, under current circumstances, you will understand that interest rates have gone up considerably. These repairs, how much did you say? And so, in this scenario, El Caecilius Eucundus soon moved his business elsewhere, his son went into politics, and therefore into a higher social rank, and are all but entirely forgotten. The box of records remained resting where it had always rested, out of sight and forgotten, just as any cardboard box today might wind up in a basement, or attic, or garage, for years on end, increasingly irrelevant, as the records inside, like the yellowing bank statements or tax records of our time, passed by living memory or government curiosity. If the faithful Felix, whether as caretaker or new householder, ever thought about the box, most probably he did so with the mind of the custodian. Years might pass, but one does not meddle with another man's financial records. They represent money. They could be important. You never knew when someone might want to bring a specious case to law. Or the sons, they might need them someday, even if they have given up the business. Best to leave them in case someone from the family ever comes by to ask. No problem for Felix. He had plenty to keep him busy. 
Eucundus thought that Pompey would never recover, and neither did the boys, so giving the house over to Felix when the old man died was no skin off their noses. But Felix is making the place work, opening up the front rooms onto the street and renting them out to tradesmen. That was a nice little earner. Multiple income streams, that's what the old man always said. As a freedman, Felix was now able to get into the money game himself. And with a connection to Jucundus, business was not too bad, all things considered. That bust by the doorway, everyone who came in commented on it. How it looked just like him, and what a good man he had been. A good investment, really. In the freeze of the earthquake on the Lorarium, not quite the showstopper, but you can't be too careful. Bad things could happen, and happen quickly, and best to have the spirits on your side. Again, all pure speculation. If it's more or less correct, one likes to think, like the new owner of the Villa of the Mysteries, that our man Felix had enough time to enjoy this magnificent house. Next time, we approach the month of March and the first signs of spring. As a friendly reminder, if you like my work and have a few dollars or pounds or euros to spare, you can donate to the cause on Patreon or buy me a beer, or buy my books available on Amazon or other fine booksellers here and there. If you don't have a few dollars or pounds or euros to spare, upvotes, subscribing, or talking up the series would help the enterprise. Until next time, thank you for listening.